Welcome back to the second hour of Gesundheit with Jakobus. Here again is your host, Jakobus Holloway. And good morning, everybody. We have two hours left with Dr. Robert Linden, and even though he is a fast talker, I think we are not going to be able to get everything done that he can share with us about his work in the medical field. And after he retired in December 31st, 2007, he started writing a book and um, to talk about some of the issues that he saw happening around him and also explaining the, the passion that he has had in his field, what got him into the medical field, and then the problems that started to grow around him. It, you can say problems, or some people say, well, it's just a regular growth of the industry, but definitely when you get the people that are the business people looking only at the bottom line, which for them is money, well, a doctor who goes into medical practice really should care about patients, you start to get a conflict. So all of a sudden, there is a problem in the way that the industry is run and the, the, with the malpractice suits, with the high premiums, the way that the doctors are educated in medical school, what they're not being educated into. Uh, you look at uh, the overprescribing of drugs and you look at patients getting sicker and sicker which has resulted in us being number 37 in the world as far as healthcare is concerned, but we're number one when it comes to cost. So Dr. Linden wrote a book, The Rise and Fall of the American Medical Empire, a trench doctor's view of the past, present, and future of the U.S. healthcare system. And you can find more information about the book uh, when you just look that up, The Rise and Fall of the American Medical Empire. You can go to Sunrise. River Press, sunriseriverpress.com, and go through the different books, find his books, and you find his book, and then click on it. The book is available in Bozeman. I don't know if it's at Barnes & Nobles, but I do know it is at Borders Bookstore, and so the copies are available there. I talked to the manager, Tom, and he said, yes, they are here, so that is good to know. If you would like to email Dr. Linden, you can do that at linden, L-I-N-D-E-N, Linden0552 at yahoo.com. Linden0552 at yahoo.com. You can also call him after this weekend. So not this weekend. He is going to be very busy. But after this weekend, if you want to talk to him, you can dial him at 860-739-4276. 860-739-4276. And uh, we do have... Uh, a caller, Dr. Linden. It's good to have. Can you turn Dr. Linden on, please, too? Uh, all right, here we are. And uh, we have a caller on hold who would like to talk to you. Caller, good morning. Your name, please. How can we help you? Uh, this is Lee. Hello, Lee. I'm uh, just a quick background. I'm also a retired physician. Uh-huh. Uh, just recently retired, 2006. Uh-huh. And I spent a good deal of my professional career uh, in private practice as well as academic medicine. Uh, with a, I'm a specialist, a radiologist, specialties in trauma, emergency, breast imaging, and nuclear medicine. Awesome. And a couple of observations that Dr. Linden made is very interesting. As I noticed as you know, my career was going on, I would listen to the residents, because we were a big academic institution, talking in conferences. And I would listen to the background, and they would all talk about how brilliant somebody was or how they that, but they never talked anywhere, anytime, about whether they were compassionate or not. You know, the person might have a terrible personality. The radio or the uh, resident could have a terrible personality, but they would say, "Oh, but they're so bright." 
You know, yes. all the emphasis was always on what papers could you write or, or what tests. And oh. I also served on a county uh, medical practice review committee. And wow. one of the other things that's very interesting that Dr. Lynn made is we very rarely reviewed a case where a doctor got in trouble for ordering a test. It was usually for not ordering a test. Oh. So, you know, if you look at what he says, the the emphasis, it was, it's been there for a long, long time. That's huh. um, you know, and, and then his other comment about people, one of the things I've always thought is the, the American public also needs to take some responsibility for their own health care. You just can't show up at the doctor's office after 20 years of neglect and say, fix me. It just doesn't work that way, Yes, yes. as we all know. Well, yeah. that's a great point. Dr. Linden, you have a comment about that. Oh, I agree. I, I, I think that's the issue about the, you know, sort of, um, you know, the, the medical, how the medical schools view this is, is basically what I think is a downfall of primary care at this point. I think that medical schools, for some reason, reward the docs that can cite the studies, that basically order more testing, because to them, that sort of means you're more knowledgeable about this stuff, and, and you get the A, and the, the, the resident or the student that goes to the bedside does a good history and physical and then says we don't need any further testing, this is what I think we should do based on that, is looked at, looked, is frowned upon. And I think that Basically, um, no. These are the so what we're turning out is a group of physicians that basically learn to test, 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 and not to ask a lot of questions. And and that unfortunately, you know, continues on into private practice, yes. where they continue to test and and they and they don't develop the skills at the bedside, and they do depend on testing. And that's where we end up with our high tech, ex- expensive way of uh, uh, you know of treating people. Um, these are the people that are bright, and I think that in the old days, you know, people ended up, you know, in internal medicine residency 50% of the time. I mean, they, but now, uh, obviously, is, you know, we'll, we may get into with the death of primary care, I mean, only 20% of the medical school graduates are going into internal medicine residencies. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think that a lot of this is medical school, I, I don't know how they approach students, and I think they're going to have to change. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I was always uh, a big advocate of family practice, and and uh, I always thought, you know, my advocate was when uh, patients would come in, they'd say, well, what specialist should I see? You know, or if I did a radiology test and I found something, I'd say, you know, a good primary care physician should be the coach of the team. And totally. they'll tell you, you know, what specialist you need. And, and uh, I was criticized for that at times, like, oh, well, you know, well, we should do this special MRI or we should do that. And I always ask the question, I'd say, you know, why are we doing it? What are you looking for? And what are you going to do with the results? And if you couldn't give me an answer to that, then why are we starting with that test? And periodically, I would get in a big discussion with colleagues and certainly with the residents about that uh, particular But that's really attitude. interesting, Lee, because that's what Bob is saying. He feels that the primary care physician is the quarterback yeah. on your team. I mean, that's the one who, who knows the, the game. He knows which way you can go and then says, okay, this is what we should do first. But when you know all the aspects, it's much easier to tell the patient, you know, hey, whoa, 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 don't go overboard right now. Let's, we can do this and this and this right now oh, and, yeah. and start working on it and, and, and educate the patient about how they really should take care of themselves because that's always the cheapest, uh, the cheapest way to go. In the long run, it was. We would have patients come in and demand. At one time, there was a big push toward the whole body CT scans uh, looking for almost anything. And we would have patients come in directly demanding to have one. And 
you know, I used to be so perplexed by it. <laughs> say, well, why are we doing that? Well, they heard it from somebody, or they saw it on television, or a friend told them that. And I said, but if we find a tiny spot, what are we going to do about it? Because we need to know about the rest of you. And sometimes you would get into big discussions about it, and many physicians would go ahead and just do the test because they didn't want to risk being sued. Because I had patients say, well, if you don't do this test, I'll sue you. And I'd take time. You'd have to sit down and spend time and discuss it with the patient, what you were doing, why we were doing it, and why, you know, we had that particular approach to a problem. And time, you usually, you know, the patient would come around and say, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Mm. But that takes time. And, you know, when you've got a big list or a nurse standing there fingering the chart saying you're getting behind, there's a push to not do that. I see. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I'll let you go. That well, was thanks, my observation. Lee. Thanks for the comments. Yep. Yeah, Great. Appreciate it. Yeah, You're welcome. Nice. Bye-bye. All righty. Uh, we have another caller. Caller, good morning to you. Thanks for your patience. What is your name? How can we help you, please? This is whatchamacallit. Were you talking about, about me on this program? <laughs> Probably will. <laughs> yeah, you use the whatchamacallit. Well, here, let me uh, go into uh, a little uh, anecdote and a, a big question. You know, one of my best friends in high school went on to become an MD. He came back one year from the University of Wisconsin that one of his professors had told him, it's not so surprising that people get cancer. It's more surprising that all people don't get cancer. That all people don't get cancer? Yeah. Yeah. Cancer just suddenly uh, uh, flares up like a fire, uh, sometimes seemingly at random. So we probably could say that uh, about most diseases and ailments. So you were speaking uh, about a to-do list for us, uh, hoi polloi, that so we wouldn't have to go to the doctor so much. So I'd ask the question, what is the most important thing that all of us could do to prevent or escape illness? Uh, with all your experience and even suspicion of the mainline medicine, what medical or non-medical intervention shall we be aware of and start practicing? Well, <laughs> I, I think it's what Jacoba said. I mean, I, I think if you had to pick out one thing or, or say two things, you know, to do, which is keep your weight down to basically a normal weight based on, you know, body mass index, because there are numerous studies showing over and over again that it only takes 5 or 10% weight gain to, to bring on diabetes and to bring on basically some of the cancers like breast cancer, things like that. So basically keeping your weight to normal, and this is an epidemic in this country right yeah. now, doesn't yeah. take any medicines, just takes a little, you know, sense of uh, organization. Yeah. And the second thing is a well-balanced diet with the increasing fiber and increasing fresh fruits and vegetables because we're just eating too much beef and uh, too much fat. Um, I think those two issues, you know, keeping your weight down to normal, and those, those graphs are out there. You can go on the Internet, find a body mass index graph. You can plot down, plot your basically your... Your, your, your weight and your height, and it'll give you uh, the number, which is 25, body mass index 25 or below is normal, 25 to 30 is overweight, and above 30 is obesity, yeah. and you want to get down around 25 and basically a well-balanced diet, and I think those are the two main issues. It has nothing to do with medicines. It'll keep people healthier and living longer. Yeah, well, here's another one uh, that uh, I read this in Consumer Reports, so they try to, uh, and they have a, a, a newsletter called Consumer Reports on, uh, on Health, and they said the one factor that trumps all the others, uh, trumps uh, medicine and even trumps weight, is uh, regular exercise. So are you an exercise buff, right. too? Right, yes. Yeah, very important. Aerobic exercise. And, and those studies are done a lot in the geriatric literature. You know, aerobic exercise. And, and it's got to be aerobic. You know, getting, you know, it's not weight lifting. It's getting your heart rate up, breathing up, and being weight 
you know, dependent. I mean, you know, it's been shown over and over again, you want to be supporting your entire body. So walking, jogging, elliptical machine, actually because it helps prevent osteoporosis. It's the weight of your body that actually keeps your bones strong. Yes. So, um, you know, this weight lifting to make yourself look better is putting on muscle mass, but it's really not helping cardiopulmonary, your heart, and your lungs, and, and, and having a basically a weight-dependent exercise where you're carrying your entire body weight is helping your bone structure. So, yeah, I think that's very important. It's been shown actually to decrease diseases and to lengthen life. You know, it's interesting that, I mean, when they look at the numbers, you know, with respect to the healthcare, and that's when Jacob has said something about the 37th, we're 37th in the world, w, you know, World Health Organization numbers with overall performance. You know, people say, well, how could that possibly be. Well, it turns out, I think the numbers are only, if you look at what creates a healthy population, only 10% is basically um, your health care system that your country has. Uh, 40%, I think, is basically, basically lifestyle. You know, yes. it's your diet, exercise, what you're doing with weight. I think 30% is genetics, and then there's the 5 or 10% environmental stuff. But really, it comes down to lifestyle. Ten uh, percent healthcare, your healthcare system, and that's why a lot of our numbers are are down because because uh, our lifestyle stinks in this country. There's too much obesity, too much overeating, and not enough exercise. Yeah. Uh, well, all right. You. Well, I, I got to go meet uh, what's his face. Uh, I got to get going. Thank you, Daniel. Okay, right. Thanks for Have a good weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. Good point. Um, I I agree with what you say, Doctor Linden. I want to reiterate, I see people who happen to have a fast metabolism, so they are able to keep their weight down no matter what they eat. So I do like your point. Your second point is make sure you have a well-balanced diet because if just because you are slender built, it doesn't mean that you're healthy. Uh, it still depends what you put into your mouth uh, and, and, and because if it doesn't show on the outside, it definitely can start to affect the inside. And uh, osteoporosis is one of the things we often see with women who are more slender build, that they have a higher incidence of osteoporosis as they get older. On the other hand, we see that uh, diabetes can happen to skinny people and heavyweight people. Uh, but definitely the weight is becoming, no pun intended, a burden. And it's uh, we, we, have to, we have to watch that. So I do like both of those. I, I also like, indeed, the exercises. But I understand you say aerobic. Um, uh, there are two things. Number one, I thought that weight, uh, working with weight is very good to help prevent osteoporosis. Not that I want to emphasize osteoporosis, but I understand it's very good. Number two is uh, the if you do a good circuit workout with weights, working with weights, it is an excellent aerobic exercise as well. Right. That's what I right. thought. All right. We have another caller who would like to talk to you. Caller, good morning to you. Thanks for tuning in today. You're on the air with Dr. Robert Linden, author of The Rise and Fall of the American Medical Empire. What is your name? How can we help you, please? This is Clint. Hey, Clint. Good morning. Good morning there, Jacobus. Good morning, right. Dr. Linden. Hi. How are you doing, Clint? Well, I got a statement to make, and then I've got to ask you a question. Uh-oh. serious. <laughs> are you ready for this? <laughs> yes. Yes. In the state of Montana, we have 167 cities dumping their sewer water into our rivers and streams, which wind up eventually in the Mississippi. Then we have cities in Montana and all along the Missouri River taking this water out, trying to retreat it and make it drinkable for the people. I want to know what you think about that. 
And I want to know what you know, you and Jacobus know about the, the herb saffron. And I'll hang up and listen, okay? All right. Thanks, okay. Clint. Thank you. You bet. You don't, it sounds like, you know, I don't. Oops. I, Go ahead. T- t- no, I don't know much about Montana, so I, you know, that uh, obviously we live in a town with three nuclear power plants, actually one's closed, and, and Long Island Sound right at our doorstep, and our government really clamps down on any of this, you know, pollution. And, and so they were, they're out there with their guy counters checking our nuclear power plants all the time, and they've really cleaned up Long Island Sound, and I think that it takes, unfortunately, um, you know, it takes, and I hate to say the government regulation of, of, of industry, because a lot of these industries really don't have the ethics or the social conscience to clean up their act. And I, I think Montana's going to have to be responsible for getting involved with, you know, cleaning up the, the dumping uh, to really get to the problem. Um, I wish industries were more responsible, but unfortunately the bottom line and the profits went out over social responsibility, at least in this country. And uh, we found in the Northeast that unless the governments get involved with it, Nothing happens. As far as saffron, I'd be interested in what Jacobus says on that. And as far as saffron, don't know much about it. I'll have to, you know, graciously uh, uh, give that off to, to Jacobus. Well, I, I don't know enough about it. I just know that in the old days when I was a chef, uh, when I went to chef school, uh, saffron was one of those very special uh, spices that you use to make the food look beautifully yellow, but it was also extremely expensive. Um the best I can do is to tell you what I see on the internet, and it says um, it says some components in saffron act as topo two inhibitors, similar to the chemotherapy drug adriamycin. Yet, unlike uh, adriamycin, saffron is non-toxic. Nair noted a dose-dependent cancer effect on carcinoma, sarcoma, and leukemia cells in the test tube. Saffron increased the lifespan of treated mice compared to untreated controls by 45 to 120%. In addition, it delayed the onset of papillomas. Uh, So apparently, uh, scientists have also shown that extracts of saffron inhibit cell growth of human tumor cells. Cancer cells treated with uh, crocin had empty areas, reduced cytoplasm, and a destruction of the DNA, all potentially good things for patients. Crocin, they said, is a promising saffron compound to be assayed as a cancer therapeutic agent, and that is really the best I can do. I do know that Clint has been diagnosed with bladder cancer, and uh, he has called the program before. So that is the best I can give you at this point. There is obviously a lot of information available. I wasn't aware that saffron um, was used. I haven't seen it in a supplement form, but... um, and I don't know exactly how many milligrams you would have to use, Clint, in order to start seeing the benefits, uh, the, the therapeutic benefits, especially when you're trying to fight cancer. So can't help you there, but there's lots of information available. Um, for There's absolutely quite a bit of information available on saffron. That's the best I can do. So, Dr. Linden, as we uh, talk about the primary care physician, uh, actually, three things, uh, folks, as you're listening to today's program, Gesundheit with Jacobus, uh, in the book, The Rise and Fall of the American Medical Empire, from Dr. Robert Linden, the, uh, there is the, there's the part of the primary care physician and the, 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 the wonderful, the intuitiveness, the knowledge 
the connection with the patients, the, being the quarterback on the medical team. That's one part. There is a part where Dr. Linden talks about the problems that we have. Where is it going wrong with the malpractice suits and with uh, the issues that are coming up in, in that, the, the different models that we have, those five different models. And then we have also there is a section on the pharmaceutical industry and, and uh, the issues that are going on with that and the money behind it and, and that it is all about the money and that it has that really the, 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 the field of medicine has become a, a business. And often we, uh, for most of the people who are alive, especially the older generation, you remember the doctor being the one who came to your house, did the house visits, uh, somebody you could connect with, somebody you could meet out on the street and have a little chat with about the weather or whatever. It seems that it has, it is changing. The younger generation starts to know doctors as these people with white coats who are indeed in their office. You got to go visit them. Uh, you have long waiting times in the in the office. Uh, you spend a lot of money going in and uh, you just are uh, going to be broke if you really need to have treatment. So uh, there has been a big change and that is what uh, what is all described in the book. Would you like to talk a little bit more, Dr. Linden, about the primary care physician and what is what is why is this such an important part of your book uh, that you wrote, right? Okay, yeah. I mean, the first part of the book, as as you just said, is is the death of primary care, and I think that there's a disappearing primary care segment, and I think that is the closest part, closest section of the book to my heart because that's what I was, and I'm seeing this all the time, and and it's a it's a major problem. And just to put it in perspective, I mean, when I went to medical school, like I mentioned before, half the graduating class class in my school plus across the country, 50% of the medical students went into internal medicine residencies. And you have to understand from a lot of, you know, basically a lot of internal medicine residencies, people go in, but they go on to become subspecialists or, or a lot of subspecialty sections like radiology, dermatology require one year in internal medicine residency before you go into their subspecialty. But 50% of people were going into internal medicine residencies and 50% of those people we're going into primary care internal medicine. And it came out that basically of the 16,000 U.S. medical school graduates, 4,000 were going into primary care medicine across wow. the country. Yeah. That number has dropped. 20% of the school class are going into internal medicine residencies. And when they take that number, 20% are going into uh, primary care practice. And yeah. the problem is a lot of those people are foreign medical graduates now. We don't we have, have enough. Dr. Linda, we, we Keep, we're going to continue with that. Stay okay. tuned. We'll okay. be right back on Dr. Linden. Stay tuned. Okay. You're listening to Gesundheit with Jacobus.